As soon as Bao Yu closed his eyes, he sank into a confused sleep in which Qin Shi was there, yet at the same time seemed to be drifting along weightlessly in front of him. He followed her until they came to a place of marble terraces and vermilion balustrades, where there were green trees and crystal streams. Everything in this place was so clean and so pure that it seemed as if no human foot could ever have trodden there, or floating speck of dust ever blown into it. Baoyu's dreaming self rejoiced. What a delightful place, he thought. If only I could spend all my life here. How much nicer it would be than living under the daily restraint of my parents and teachers. These idle reflections were interrupted by someone singing a song on the other side of a hill. Spring's dreamtime will like drifting clouds disperse, its flowers snatched by a flood none can reverse. Then tell each nymph and swain, tis folly to invite love's pain. I'm your host, Kevin Wilson, along with my co-host, William Jones. Will, how's it going today? Pretty good, yeah. Very excited to be getting into into Chapter 5, which is, I think, one of my favorites so far. Right, this is maybe one of the most famous chapters of the whole novel. Mm. So I'm excited. I'm filled with trepidation. This is a difficult chapter to prepare for. We were supposed to do it last week. Mm. Even with the additional week, I still feel a sense of the weight and significance of this chapter. It being the the famous dream chapter uh, mm. of a novel uh, based around dreams and, and dreams within dreams. Yeah, uh, so this is very exciting. Uh, this is also exciting because this is our first episode to record after um, this Monday. Actually, we released the first uh, the first episode uh, onto the web. There's been a lot of great response, uh, a lot of attention, much more than we expected, actually. And, and it's been really cool. It's been a nice geographical kind of spread. Uh, a lot of positive feedback, some suggestions, yeah. uh, really, really good critique and comments. So this will be the first episode where it's like uh, what we're doing kind of reflects how people are reacting to what we're doing. Mm. So it's, it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, and it's also just a good time to kind of talk about how um, doing this project, it, it can seem kind of solipsistic in some ways, but actually just getting a little bit of, uh, you know, the sense that somebody's listening, that, that people are reading along with us mm. actually is really amazing. Yeah. And it, I find it's like propelling me forward, giving me a little more energy. It's a, uh, it's a kind of a natural caffeine boost. <laughs> is that, have yeah. you felt that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I am, I'm really, really like uh, amazed and grateful. Uh, for the level of response and engagement we've got so far. Uh, it's great to see people uh, listening, but also, you know, responding uh, on Twitter and, and elsewhere. Um, so yeah, please, yeah, please do continue listening. It's, uh, 
it's great. We really, really value the support. Okay, so as for uh, chapter five, the famous dream chapter, there's a lot going on here. Mm. We got it all. We got some squabbling between Lin Dai Yu and Jabao Yu. Uh, we got we got a, a tired boy. Uh, we got like a, a pretty swanky bedroom mm -hmm. of a close relative. We have a lot of like really uh, lush descriptions of both the uh, the real world and the uh, the dream world that is reflected in the real world and vice versa. It's a fairly long chapter, and it's just it's just chock full of poetry and artistic materials. Yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of references, a lot of enigmatic statements because it is a dream basically a dream chapter mm. uh there's a lot of things to work through a lot of mysteries and enigmas uh so it's been a lot of fun yeah uh it's been pretty difficult it's also been i've been thinking about how to organize our presentation of, of this chapter because so much of it is based on um foreshadowing future events in the novel mm -hmm. even including characters that we haven't really discussed yet who, who haven't been introduced to us yet yeah. And so my, my kind of my general idea for like a strategy for how to approach this would be to emphasize those characters that we already know, or, or, or at least we've already talked about, right? Yeah, I agree with that. Right. We, we've talked a lot about uh, Shri Baochai mm -hmm. due to the, her significance in the novel, even though she hasn't really appeared that much in what we've read so far. But there's a lot of characters who we don't know yet. And I was thinking due to the, you know, the, the constraints of time, maybe uh, we would... For some of the material that we skip over, we can probably return to it yeah. in the future. When these characters emerge, we can go back and go, okay, okay what was there? You know, which painting corresponded? Yeah, yeah, to yeah. yeah. Which, poem, which poem was she? Which poem, <laughs> which song, basically? I guess, you know, one of the things to say is, as you mentioned, this is uh, a dream chapter. Um, and as such, uh, it's full of things that don't necessarily make perfect sense or are, are kind of deliberately kind of enigmatic or, or riddle like and i guess like what's interesting about it is that it's something that might kind of nowadays be called something like magical realism i suppose but you know several hundred years before that as a literary form was really that kind of popular or common in the west i mean i mean we'll 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 see what it looks like in, in practice in a little bit, but it's not always made abundantly clear whether what is going on is dream or reality. I guess before we jump in, do we want to just do a quick, um, just a reminder of what happened last time and just talk in summary what this chapter covers? That, that sounds great, yeah. So in chapter four, wh whereas chapter five is very much a dream sequence, chapter four is very much about kind of real events and the concerns of the, the real material world. So in that chapter... Uh, our old friend, uh, Jia Yutun, who was, at the beginning of the story, a kind of penniless uh, but ambitious young intellectual, has now been sent to uh, a city called Yingtianfu to serve as kind of magistrate. And when he arrives there, he discovers that there has been a, a murder case uh, that requires his attention. The details are pretty straightforward. There is a local man who bought a slave from a... a a slave kind of trader, as it were, with the intention of freeing this this woman who's the slave and making her his wife. But he decides that in between paying the purchase price and inviting her into his home, he should allow three days to pass in a kind of ritual that somewhat kind of mimics, uh, I guess, actual bridal or marital practices at the time. Uh, anyway, during those three days, the slave trader goes off and sells it to somebody else. And then runs away with, with the cash. 
Uh, and so the two uh, buyers are left to work it out between themselves. Now, unfortunately for buyer number one, buyer number two, uh, a local wealthy man called Xuepan, uh, or rather the son of a local wealthy family, is very rich and powerful, and he's not really interested in this other guy's kind of earlier claim. Uh, so he has his goons beat this guy to death, uh, and then he subsequently flees. So this is the case that's presented to Jiayu Sun to kind of adjudicate. Uh, and his initial response is, well, we should arrest the guy. It's, you know, an open and shut case, smoke and gun, etc. But thanks to the advice of his, his kind of usher, you know, his, his advisor, he decides to take a slightly more nuanced approach. The reason being that because the murderer, Xuepan, is from this very wealthy Xuepan family, it would be very politically inconvenient to, to upset them. So in the end, he comes to a, a kind of arrangement where the Xuepan family pays uh, some money to the family of the murdered man and everyone goes away more or less happy. In the meantime, Xuepan and family have set off for, for the capital to see their family there. So Xuepan's mother is also of the Jia clan, uh, the same Jia clan that Jia Yutun belongs to, and which has been the kind of central focus of the story so far. Now, Xuepan originally wants to go to the capital because he wants to go and uh, get drunk and visit brothels and go to the theatre and gamble and generally carouse with his friends. And it looks like that objective is going to be frustrated because his mother says that rather than staying in one of their, their homes, you know, because they have numerous different homes, you know, houses in the, in the capital, they will instead stay with their family in the Jia clan. But actually it all turns out all right because there are lots of other uh, dissolute uh, young men in the Jiao clan who enjoy going out and getting drunk and acting badly just as much as Shuapan does. And that's more or less where we leave it, uh, other than just to note that at this point, another of the very important characters, Shuapan Chai, enters the story. Now, one of the central kind of plot points of, of the book of Hong Mong is this love triangle between three characters, uh, Jia Baoyu, our young man, Lin Daiyu, and Xue Baochai, two of whom who are both girls and are both uh, his cousins, but at the same time are, yeah, uh, kind of competing for his, uh, well, well th both the subject of his, his kind of romantic affections, I suppose. So that's more or less where we leave chapter four. Um, chapter five is really just a kind of lengthy and, and, and rather amazing dream sequence um, in which uh, Jia Baoyu, our central character, one day, <laughs> grows tired and goes for an afternoon nap. And while he's having this afternoon nap, has this very elaborate and fascinating dream where he travels to a kind of dreamland and a fairy serves as his guide. And he happens to find out all sorts of interesting information um, uh, about the world that he lives in through books and pictures that are stored there, but also through the performance of a kind of uh, operatic well, some kind of performance, I suppose, by, by uh, several of the fairies. Um, and then at the end of it, he, he returns to, to the kind of material world, and that's where we leave it. I suppose plot-wise, there aren't a lot of great things happening, but the, the actual substance of the dream sequence is very, very interesting in that it gives us a lot of foreshadowing of what's going to happen later in the plot. And, and it's also just extremely kind of interesting and good reading uh, in its own right. And so I, I was thinking 
where we should really begin here. There's some mention of how uh, Lin Dayu and Jia Baoyu were, were fighting, were squabbling a little bit. I think that's kind of important for the uh, kind of the tone of their relationship. Yeah. There is still in this chapter, we're reminded of basically how both how young, but also how immature uh, Jia Baoyu is. Mm. I, I think that's important to, to yeah. mention. And it's due to this youth and immaturity he's allowed to sleep in lady chin's bed yeah. right she's a part of the the ning house yeah right yeah, yeah. so that as we remember the jiao clan has two branches ning and rong and so yeah she's she's yeah i think part of the ning side right um and she's married to jarong um who's also a member of that household yeah. so so i mean the setting is the winter plum in one of the parts of the mansion is, is blossoming and so I, I suppose having nothing better to do, some of the family members decide to go and look at it uh, and enjoy, you know, how how kind of scenic it is while drinking tea. And then after they've had some tea, they they move on to wine. And it's in this context that yeah, Bao Yu says, "Oh, I'm feeling a bit tired. I want to go for a nap." And as you say, Qin uh, Shi offers to let him sleep in her bedroom. I wanted to add there that we can kind of think about the, uh, maybe the symbolic significance of the flower blossoming. It is like, in, in a sense, in, in a really obvious sense, uh, love is in yeah. the air. And, and the fact that, I think in this chapter, I want to emphasize, we see a lot of um, things in the real world, quote unquote, being reflected in the dream mm. world, which I, I think uh, reflects a pretty acute sense for the way dreams function in, in a way, yeah. where the events of our day are basically translated into kind of a new space, the dream space, yeah. in the same way that artwork will translate uh, real events, real people into the artistic space. And so when you see the artwork in the dream, you see this um, this kind of dynamic uh, relationship between these two um, transposing media. Yeah. And so we'll see, just as the, the adults, quote unquote, are enjoying tea and then wine, <laughs> the same order of this kind of consumptive ritual yeah. is recapitulated in <laughs> the dream. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and one other thing I just want to touch on at this stage is, certainly from my reading, uh, I understood this dream sequence as in part being about kind of like sexual awakening. So I think Bao Yu at this point is maybe maybe about 13, 14 kind of age, kind of boy in early teenage years. And I think that that, you know, is definitely the stage at which you begin to have something of that kind of awakening, but it's not necessarily one that you really understand that clearly. There's a lot of you know, you, you have a lot of kind of like strong feelings and things, but you don't necessarily know exactly what they derive from, what they mean or how to kind of how they how they should be kind of channeled or whatever. And I think there is this is this is kind of suggested in in the dream sequence somewhat in, in various ways. Uh, and I, I, I think that the you're right, the, the fact that it comes from uh, the flowering of the winter plum, I think is also symbolically reflecting that to a degree. I wanted to mention that this bedroom is really over the top. Yeah. It's really just full of sensual and sensuous artifacts. One of the descriptions of the of the bedroom, uh, I think, is is worth looking at briefly because it's full of all of these amazing artifacts. And you initially begin by thinking, like, "Wow, this is amazing! I can't believe they have all these artifacts." And then it quickly becomes clear that this is he's, I guess, suggesting it's a young boy's imagination running away with him because. You know, so if you if you read it, it's, he's describing Qin Shi's bedroom, Jia Rong's wife's bedroom. Uh, so inside the room, there was a painting by Tang Yin entitled Spring Slumber, depicting a beautiful woman asleep under a crabapple tree whose buds had not yet opened. The painting was flanked on either side by a pair of calligraphic scrolls, 
inscribed with a couplet from the brush of the song poet Qin Guan. It continues, on the table stood an antique mirror that once graced the tiring room of the lascivious empress Wu Zetian. Beside it stood the golden platter on which the flying swallow once danced for her emperor's delight. And on the platter was the very quince which the villainous An Lu Shan threw at beautiful Yang Guifei, bruising her plump white breast. So, you know, it starts with, oh, they've got a painting by a, a very famous painter. Oh, they've also got a couplet from a very famous poet. And then, you know, increasingly it becomes kind of less and less probable that these are the real artifacts in the room. And when it gets down to the quints that An Lushan threw at Yang Guifei, you think, well, okay, I mean, that was a thousand years before this was written. So, so I mean, by that point you can see, okay, obviously this is uh, not hyperbolic as such, but it's, it's, it's imagined, you know, um, it's intended to convey the sense that there's this feeling of kind of uh, magic and wonder in the room through this rather like overblown description of the artifacts in it. And Bao Yu's response is simply, I like it here. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really amusing. I did think that was very good. And so the surrounding servants are, are kind of rather outraged by the idea of um, an uncle sleeping in his niece's um, bedroom. But she kind of laughs it off, you know, he's just a child, you know, don't be ridiculous kind of thing. But, but uh, I, th I think it is interesting because, again, it goes back to, I think, the idea that this is a passage to do with sexual awakening. It's also an interesting illustration of how convoluted some of those webs of relationships, familial relationships can be. This is basically the moment. We're almost already into the dream, right? Yeah. In this transitional moment, we actually see during the transitional moment between dreaming and waking, you often will bring part of the the waking world with you. Yep. So, and, and so in the dream, uh, Jabao Yu, uh, he brings, or, or Qin Shi brings him along. Lady Chen brings him along. Yeah. And actually, this is the passage that we covered in the cold open. Yeah. Where we, we have a whole new world, which um, seems like clear and crisp and beautiful. And, and definitely, if we return to um, kind of the earlier idea of men being mud and women being water. Yeah. You know, this world is crystal clear stream. Something to that effect, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then there's, there's a really long um, poem describing uh, the fairy disenchantment. Yes. Jinghuan. Yeah. So, so would you like to talk about her name? For, okay, yeah. Because yeah. Um, Hawks uses, he follows this, this same uh, format that he's been using throughout, which is to give people who have conventional Chinese names, you know, surname, first name, uh, just to use them. But people who are perhaps not entirely of this world and also servants are given kind of English translations of the name. So in the first chapter, there's the monk whose name in English or the name in the Hawks translation is Vanitas, um, which is this, yeah, right. weirdly Latinate name. And so, yeah, in her case, it's disenchantment. Yeah, so I was also thinking about that. Is she guarding against enchantment? Hmm. Is that the idea? She's like, a, she's like the enchantment police? Yeah. You know? That's maybe where Hawks is getting disenchantment. And so, like, as we're going to learn, the point of this exercise isn't to, you know, seduce Jabao Yu into the world of illusion, yeah. right? It's to show him that it is uh, a great emptiness. It is Tai Shu, yeah. right? It is a, a Tai Shu Huan Jing. Yeah. Right? We're basically returning to the, um, the same world that we, we saw represented um, in the first chapter, yeah. right? We're going to re return again to the giant gateway 
talking about the uh, the space between the real and yep. the false. And so I've been thinking about this, whether this, um, what exactly is this space? Is all of the non-real world this kind of, um, this land of disenchantment? Or are there, is this like a space between ultimate disenchantment where you have, um, you have dreams, you have illusions, maybe you have artwork even, yeah. right? We're also going to see toward the end of this chapter, there is, um, it's not all fun and games. There's going to be this, like, like a danger zone. And even within this beautiful world, we're going to see that a lot of these paintings and, and these, these artwork, their, their content is not only kind of um, sorrowful, but some of it is downright... Uh, yeah, it's sort of tragic even. Macabre, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, dark. So there's some dark images. So maybe there's, there's almost like a nightmarish uh, kind of tinge to some of this, this material. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's what she's guarding against. That's what the Jing might represent. Yeah, I think that that's true. So guarding, guarding fantasy, but guarding against fantasy somehow. Um, she's an enchanted disenchanter yeah, or something. Yeah. She's in this. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's true. I think that's about right. Once we get kind of beyond the poem, she explains kind of her, what it is that she does. There's a, a kind of pair of couplets that, or there's a couplet, there's a pair of lines that sort of explain very neatly what uh, her role is. But essentially her, her role is like, I, I am responsible for managing the love debts of the human world. And I guess women's sorrows and men's foolishness. Yeah, sort of broadly, broadly how it's, how it's translated. And I think this is quite interesting because it's, it uses several images that I think are quite, quite interesting. So first of all, she uses the term Chen Shi to mean the human world. And that literally translates as dust world. Mm. So the human world is the world of dust. Um, and so I guess it conveys several things. One is the point that you touched on earlier, this obsession of Bao Yu, and I guess by extension, the author, Cao Xueqin, with uh, men being mud and dirt and women being purity and water and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and therefore, because this is the world, you know, this is the, the world of men, it's, um, it's one of dust. But it's also, uh, I guess, dust here representing maybe um, tangible material things compared to the, the immaterial world that, that we're in at the moment. And then, sure. then just the final character, Chu, which is literally foolishness, really. But um, I think here is a stand-in for something rather more serious than mere foolishness. Um, I think it's intended to be, uh, I think foolishness is intended to be uh, a euphemism for adultery. And I think that that is uh, suggested in, um, yeah, suggested in the Hawke's translation. He uses the term philanderings. But yeah, foolishness isn't just men being silly, but it's, uh, it's men being uh, actually unfaithful. And obviously the, the consequent emotional pain that comes from that. And we also have this idea of the feng yue jujai. Yeah. Reminds me of the dead of tears that the crimson, the crimson right, flower, yeah. which comes to represent uh, Lin Dayu, mm. uh, promises to repay the stone that becomes Jiao in, in the first chapter, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of the same uh, like uh, monetary uh, metaphor. In the first chapter, there's a sequence where the stone, it spends a lot of time in a dream world watering a... A particular crimson flower with a particular kind of dew. Exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's this sort of like magical water that the stone waters the flower with. And in response, this flower is so grateful for having been uh, cared for uh, in this way that the flower kind of vows to go down to the, the material world to keep the stone company, to kind of, yeah, be a, 
a companion to the stone, I suppose. Um, and yeah, you're right, exactly. It's, it's expressed in the same terms that as debt. It's a very complicated metaphor. Um, even with the idea that you're mentioning of this, the mortal dust, yeah. some of this I would trace back to a, a kind of a Buddhist ideology, but I, I wouldn't reduce it to that at the same time. I think the author is trying to work through, um, in a lot of these poems, there's an emphasis on what, what is the meaning of all this sorrow? What is the meaning, if this is faded, what's the, the kind of the the cosmic significance of ill-fated yeah. events for whose purpose does this serve or is this is this self-created is this written into the cosmos and if mm -hmm. so why it's, it's a pretty interesting discussion but it's also these metaphors are um tangled and kind of um they don't align perfectly i, I think for that reason they actually it gives them a, a certain there's almost a certain like perfection in their imperfection which, which is again another notion that is um alluded to in, in a few of these yeah. poems and that's that's my kind of read of, of all these metaphors, going back and, and rethinking about what exactly happened in the first chapter. Why does this stone water this crimson yeah. flower, and what is the relationship between his surplus character as you know the one piece that was not needed, rebuilding yeah. the sky? He was unneeded, so he maybe he transferred his purpose slash purposelessness to the stone, and together they kind of um, for a while they were able to find meaning, but that meaning was. Uh, encapsulated in a certain way. Yeah. So you, you can kind of see how there's different ways to interpret yeah. this. Yeah, um, absolutely. So right after that passage that um, that, that you cite, I, I think it's right afterwards. Mm. She's saying, you know, my meeting you here today is not an accident. Yeah. You know, and she said, I'm going I'm to quote from the Hawks sure. translation. This place where we are now is not very far from my home. I have not much to offer you, but would you like to come back with me and let me try to entertain you? Uh, it, she almost sounds like the, like the author, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the purpose of this book is, but hopefully it's yeah. entertaining. I have some fairy tea, which I picked myself. You could have a cup of that. And I have a few jars of choice new wine of my own brewing. So again, this is a reflection of what the adults are yeah. doing right now. He himself is about to be indoctrinated into the very adult activity of, of yeah. lovemaking, yeah. right? Yeah. And she also mentions... I've also been rehearsing a fairy choir and a troupe of fairy dancers in a 12-part suite, which I recently composed, called A Dream of Golden yeah. Days. The author, Taltriotian, is doing that thing where you say the name, you say the title of the book in the book, and like the reader goes, oh, oh, oh there, there, he's done the, he said the title. Um, but yeah, <laughs> your ears are supposed yeah, to Yeah, exactly. You go, hmm, ah, something important. I saw in part of Hawke's explanatory note he was saying that the color red has this significance in Chinese that it doesn't have in, in, in English. So they share some of the same connotations, but they don't share others. So in particular, the, the very strong association between the color red and I guess kind of good fortune and prosperity and happiness, which is very present in, in, in Chinese to an extent that it isn't in English. And so he mentions that, yeah, he'll, may well use other colors to represent the same meaning uh, in different contexts, whether it's, as in this case, gold, but he also mentions in another place, he, he, he might use the term, he might use the color green, for example. But yeah, I think it is an interesting one because even though he's trying to convey some of the same meaning, he, it, doesn't, it still doesn't line up perfectly. A dream of golden days, mm. to me, conveys almost something lost. The golden days in my, uh, in my imagination, are always in the past. Mm. So it's not one that you're living in now or one that you will live in in future. It's it's harking back to something um, 
something gone. Whereas uh, Hong Lo Meng, um, to me, is it is yeah partly about um, the suggestion of kind of uh, passion and sexual feelings, but it's also mm. I think as we maybe touched on in like the first episode um, to do with I guess like wealth and prosperity and and things you know the red chamber being okay um, something that you would find in a in a kind of grand wealthy mansion. So, so maybe this next um, there's a short poem, and, and maybe it uh, it actually um, kind of validates Hawk's translation, sure. right? So, so Bao Yu he hear, he gets this this, um, this invitation. He's very excited. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and so he follows her through the same stone archway that we talked about uh, in the first uh, the first two uh, yep. episodes, right? The, uh, the 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 land of illusion, the Taishu yeah. Huanjing, right? We see again the couplet, you know, truth becomes fiction when the fiction's true, real becomes not real when the unreal is real. Uh, and then I'm, I'm going to continue on in the Hawks sure. translation. Having negotiated the archway, uh, the archway, they presently came to the gateway of a palace. The following words were inscribed horizontally across the the lintel: uh, "Seas of pain and skies of passion." And in the original, there is "Niehai Qingtian." <laughs> And so the uh, the skies of passion is the Qingtian. So maybe that is kind of this idea of the maybe the skies are almost you know they're golden, but they're also red. With yeah. Passion. Maybe that's what he what he's tr- yeah. trying to get at yeah, there. Yeah. And, and so at, at this point, we see um, the dream space has this really interesting um, kind of bureaucratic organization to it, which is which is very um, a lot of other Chinese literature. There is this idea of the the underworld. Uh, the, heavenly kingdoms as being highly organized, highly bureaucratic uh, in various ways. And this dream is no, no exception. Yeah, yeah. So even bearing in mind that this essentially is all happening within Bayou's own imagination, it is very funny that um, it happens to have, you know, a similar sort of well-ordered, as you say, bureaucracy administration to it. Uh, and it's not just kind of totally um, chaotic or, or anarchic. They pass through a series of gates, uh, Bao Yu and the Fairy Disenchantment, and they pass through various. They pass by various buildings, uh, and and each one of these buildings has a, a sign above it, um, declaring what the um, what the building is. And uh, he's not able to make out all of them, uh, but he manages to spot a few. And so I think that's quite, you know, they're quite good to read. So from the Hawks translation, Definitely, it yeah. says, Department of Fond Infatuation. Department of Cruel Rejection, Department of Early Morning Weeping, Department of Late Night Sobbing, Department of Spring Fever, Department of Autumn Grief. I, I mean, like, I, I don't know whether it's intentionally funny, but I did find it quite, like, amusing as, as, re, as I was reading through that. Um, particularly, I like the Department of Late Night Sobbing. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, like, tag yourself. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. It, I think a lot about uh, kind of the relationship between comprehensiveness, totality, mm. and maybe perversity. There's something uh, something like notably perverse in, in having these um, experiences, feelings, uh, sensations organized in such a way because we're so accustomed to experiencing these kinds of things in a mixed, 
are kind of, uh, you know, like the, the paints all mixed together. Mm. But here we, we see it's very uh, piece by piece by piece. And I, I think that's what produces the, the kind of the strange effect. Yeah. Uh, but it also, I think it really does have a disenchanting effect because now we're seeing things that we, we've only experienced organically. We're seeing them in this, um, this heavily systematized fashion presentation that it, it is jarring. Uh, and and I, I think, um, yeah, yeah, laughter is one reaction to this, this alienation that is, this organization produces. Yeah. yeah. And, and so we get to kind of peek into only one of these departments, but it's, it's pretty important. So the final department, the, the department of the ill-fated fair. The Chinese original is Huo Ming Su. So Su being right. department here. Ming being uh, something like fate. A sense of ordained or you know dictated um, path, and bo being well, kind of thin, weak, kind of poor, mm-hmm. sort of poor quality, I suppose. So ill, Ill fated. Yeah, we've actually seen uh, bo ming before. The discussion of um, feng yuan and uh, ying lian were described themselves as ill fated, uh, an ill fated pair. Ah, uh, and it's the same. Um, it's the same. Um, I think that's the only other reference to Bo Ming. Oh, that's that we, interesting. We've seen. That's really interesting. There has been a lot of discuss, uh, discussion of fate and, and whether you were, we'll remember uh, Jia Yutun's discussion of um, being born in, in prosperous versus, uh, you know, inauspicious times. Yep. Which I think also uh, referenced an idea of, of, of one's fate and one's correspondence with the time. Ying Lian is one of the. We'll see. Actually, in one of the one of the supplementary registers, mm-hmm. is she in the Yo uh, Fu or the Fu uh, Yeah, we'll, um, we'll 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 come to it. Um, stored within the the ill-fated the department of the ill-fated fair is, as you say, various records, and among them is the twelve beauties of Jinling. Now, in in the first episode, I think we talked about the fact that um, <clears throat> the, the book. That we're reading is known in Chinese as Hong Meng, but it has mm-hmm. numerous other names which are referred to in the text itself. And one of those be- uh, one of those um, titles is Twelve Beauties of Jinling. And so Cao is being a bit self-referential again. I guess this is he's doing the thing again of um, he's saying the name of the title to you in the text, and again it's setting off you know the, the ears are perking up, kind of thing. And so there are within this within this this cupboard where the registers are kept. There are there are three books, as far as I recall. Right, there's a main register and then two supplemental ones, and, and each one of them records uh, twelve beauties, as it were. Although, yeah, I mean it's it's literally just records of of of, of twelve women from this from this area, Jinling, which is uh, I think uh, modern day Nanjing. Outside the Department of Ill-Fated Fair, there's a uh, a couplet inscribed. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, this it's is kind a good of, one. It, it's kind of significant in that it, 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 again, it goes back to this idea of what's the purpose of the suffering uh, that, that um, humans, you know, but these characters in particular encounter. And so the Hawks translation reads, uh, Spring griefs and autumn sorrows were by yourselves provoked. Uh, flower faces, moonlight beauty were to what end disclosed. And so the, the idea of yourself provoking the suffering, uh, it, maybe it harkens back to um, to the crimson flower uh, deciding, you know, like willing her herself to enter the mortal world in order to, 
you know, pay back a, uh, a mortal lifetime of tears. One thing I'm trying to sort of grapple with here is um, the way that love and human relationships is depicted here. Is it, is there supposed to be agency for the people involved? So, I mean, in this case, uh, it suggests, yes, it was by yourself provoked. In the first line of the couplet, it uses these two characters, oh, three characters, jie, zi, ra. So jie meaning mm -hmm. all, zi meaning self, yourself, and yeah. ra meaning kind of, uh, incited or stirred up you know yeah um to so provoke or, yeah. yeah so that that means that i mean that suggests very strongly um a high degree of agency for the people involved but then something about something about the way that there's almost this grand bureaucracy in place uh, <laughs> governing like human <laughs> affairs and you know relationships amorous affairs etc suggests that the inverse is true that it's it's kind of worked out beforehand uh, and not by some kind of mystical force, but instead by, you know, uh, like a numerous, highly trained kind of administrative workforce, you know, they, you know, taking off their kind of checklist is, is, the, is the way that it kind of came across to me anyway. But this, this returns to the issue of, you know, if the, on one hand, the, the, the celestial powers are being presented as, you know, exhausting in their efforts and capacities. At the same time, our story starts on account of a celestial error where Nua, she miscounts uh, yeah. how many sky uh, pieces are needed uh, for repairing the sky. And the fact that the sky needed repairing in the first place, again, suggests a, a kind of incompleteness yeah. of power or ability or foresight. Or, and so uh, you get a lot of these kind of, any, anytime there's a, a, a sort of supernatural um, thought, these sort of contradictions will arise. And on one hand, there's a kind of a, a crude materialist way to be like, oh, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I actually think on a certain level, the, the contradictions actually feed the mystery. You could even say the same thing for modern uh, modern scientific advancements, where the more we know, there seems to be more and more like strange um, paradoxes and embodied contradictions that emerge. Yeah, much that we can't explain. And so there seems to be a similar dynamic, at least from our like uh, from a lay perspective, experientially. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I kind of treated that couplet as a kind of phenomenology of... I want to treat it as a phenomenology of aesthetics and desire and a, and a kind of attempt to understand what sets these forces in motion. I think the first poem we should maybe talk about is the second one. This is actually a, a, one of the maids, uh, Hua Xiren, yeah. which I think Hawks translates as aroma. Aroma, yeah. Uh, and that's actually the name that, uh, that Bao Yu gives uh, this particular maid. And so we, we talked about her very briefly in one of the episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we, we should probably talk about first the, the painting and then the poem. Basically, the way this works is in this booklet, there's a, a painting which is very unusual. It's kind of enigmatic. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a corresponding poem. Yeah. Um, and there seems to be a lot going on here in terms of... Uh, Hawks kind of describes these... Um, things as rebuses where you have um, a reference is kind of hidden using a play of homophony which we've already discussed in some detail yeah. in order to kind of to hide the actual subject of the painting or the or, or the poem i thought this is pretty interesting because it really corresponds with if you go back and read um sigmund freud's 1899 work interpretation of dreams i, I would analogize that to uh, to the painting, but also to the, the poem, in where you, you have these images and it's not entirely clear 
what they mean, but there's a sense that they have an underlying meaning to them. Uh, And so this part of the dream is kind of the, what Freud would call the the manifest content. Uh, And the Freudian innovation is to look for a latent meaning underneath that content. And so when we analyze these Jabalu's dreams, we're kind of doing the same thing. So we're taking and trying, I guess, to sort of unlock that mystery. For sure, for sure. And so I actually, I found a, a, a kind of a juicy quote from the interpretation of dreams. I think will really kind of uh, have an exciting effect, I hope. Freud writes, the dream thoughts and the dream content. So the content is the, um, is the manifest content. The dream thoughts is latent, the underlying message. Freud says that mm-hmm. these are, are presented to us like two versions of the same subject matter in two different languages. Or more properly, the dream content seems like a transcript of the dream thoughts into another mode of expression, whose character and syntactic laws is our business to discover by comparing the original and the translation. Uh, Freud writes, the dream thoughts are immediately comprehensible as soon as we have learned them. The dream content, on the other hand, is expressed as it were in a pictographic script, the characters of which have to be transposed individually into the language of the dream thoughts. And so Freud has this long-standing uh, obsession with pictographic languages. And so it's, it's really yeah. interesting now that we're, we're reading a work that's written in a, a pictographic language, uh, namely yeah. Chinese. And we, we see very actively that uh, the author, at least, is making use of these, um, the, of the ability to um, manipulate the, the pictographs in order to, uh, to hide messages and to produce you know, like a, a difference between the manifest and the latent material. Uh, right. At the same time, this whole, uh, I'm kind of, uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of simping for the, the Freudian perspective here, but th- this whole, this whole chapter really corresponds with a lot of like Freudian notions where you have dreams being a reflection, not only of the environment in which you're dreaming. So, you, so, so, uh, Jabao Yu is having this sensuous dream after falling asleep in this very sensuous environment. Uh, and that has mm-hmm. to be part of it. And we've also seen how, you know, the events of the day are reemerging in the dream in, in this new um, transcribed form. Yeah. Uh, at, at the same time, that you, the, the emphasis is ultimately on, uh, the, you know, the, the, the kinds of... Um, on one hand, you, you've seen this dream, it, it is a projection of the future, right? Which, is, which, which corresponds more closely with... If you go back to like traditional dream interpretation from you know a thousand two thousand years ago, the the primary concern I, I would say is with mm-hmm. uh, the extent to which dreams are a reflection of the future, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and Freud's innovation was to be like, well, you know, I am a I'm a scientific materialist. I don't actually believe that the future is reflected in dreams, but Mm -hmm. I do believe that our desire for the future is reflected in dreams. And and so Freud's idea is that dreams are primarily, if not exclusively, this is a a controversial kind of distinction, a a representation of our wishes. And so we, we, in our dreams, our wishes are fulfilled to the extent that they can be fulfilled without uh, Mm -hmm. this experience interrupting the dream process, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so we see a lot of that here where we have a young boy who uh, his first his sexual awakening is uh, is first realized in this uh, fantastic space. Yeah. Um, when we go back now to the to we were going to work on the, the second poem. Right. And, and this is this yeah. is for the 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 maid uh, Hua Shiren. And here yeah. um, in, in the Hawks translation 
he's describing the the painting that corresponds with the poem and, and he says um i've got it here it's, it says it was another picture this time a bunch of fresh flowers and a worn out mat again followed by a few lines of verse what price your kindness and compliance of sweetest flower the rich perfume you chose the player fortune favored unmindful of your master's doom I would say here that uh, if we, we think about the, the kind of the, the rebuses uh, in, in play, so Hawks actually goes through this in some detail in his appendix to this chapter, which is pretty yep. useful for um, if you want to have a, a more concrete sense of what's going on. And Hawks suggests that the uh, in the poem the or actually in the picture there's, there's a picture of fresh flowers and a worn out mat. And so we know that uh, the, the surname for uh, the, the maid is Hua, which is which is flower. Yeah. And so that's definitely that, that's our first indication that you know uh, the picture is corresponding with this character. And the mat, the character for that is Shi, and and so yeah. it, it's actually a different Shi than Hua Shiren, but it's again mm-hmm. it's the same sound. It's homophonous, and so the yeah. That's the way. That, that's the the difference. Then, in Freudian terms, the manifest content is the mat, and the latent content is uh, uh, the character Hwashiren. But there's mm-hmm. also I, I don't want to reduce it entirely to a, a a rebus because I do think there there is other meaning in there being a worn out mat. You know, this is this is clearly not. It doesn't sound like if this is a representation of your fate. It doesn't sound good, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can take it just in a very literal, symbolic way, right? I mean. In in English, we use the term "welcome mat" as a as a kind of stand-in for being kind of trampled on by others. You know, being taken advantage of, being your kindness or consideration for others is kind of in vain uh, or, or or unrecognized. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it seems absolutely that the, the worn-out mat here, I think, represents exactly that. You know, it's it's uh, a lifetime of supporting others mm. and receiving very little in return for sure for sure it's almost interesting to, to think about that uh when you're naming uh, uh somebody i think in english but especially in chinese because of the um i guess the the terseness of the names that you really you can't choose an individual um character what you're choosing is a space in this web of meaning and so, like, mm-hmm. if you were giving somebody a name, and and you want to, okay, I'm gonna call, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call somebody Shiren. You have to think about mm-hmm. all the different uh, possible meanings of, of she and how they might uh, kind of um, bubble up, you know. And so, you, you actually yeah. like, I guess, the English kind of equivalent of that would be if you're giving, uh, you know, a son or a daughter a name, you have to worry about what that name might rhyme with. You know, you don't want to give them something that uh, the kids at school are gonna like. Uh, are going to seize upon as a uh, a term of abuse, and so it, it, yeah. that, that's kind of the English equivalent, I think, of um, sure. of treating uh, these linguistic parts as really mm-hmm. embedded in this in this system of meaning. And because of this, we have this system; it really is possible for um, for there to be a distinction between manifest and latent content, because mm-hmm. because we're dealing with this this complex tool. It's really easy to to slip up and press the wrong key and and have a you know maybe a Freudian slip, or uh, or have have a word that uh, conjures other implications, other meanings, other uh, levels of significance. Yeah. Um, so I mean, do you, do you want to talk about the the Chinese content of this poem? Because I think there's some there is some kind of interesting stuff in there. Um, sure. The Hawkes translation more or less captures it, but I think it's just worth 
uh, looking at. There are these these kind of uh, parallels between different lines. So the first two lines, the first one um, is in vain your kind of gentleness and and compliance. So Wang meaning kind of in vain, Zi yourself, Wen Rou meaning yeah kind of gentle softness and compliance kind of going along with it kind of thing. And then Kong, which means sort of like empty, hollow, is a, a parallel to Wang, the first character of the previous line, which means in vain. Uh, Yun, to say, si gui ru lan, like Osmanthus and like an orchid. So, so it's in vain your uh, gentleness and compliance, and for nothing your speech like these kind of different flowers. So, so you can imagine flowery, Flowery speech in English doesn't really capture it exactly because it means something slightly different, but sort of very pleasant and accommodating ways of speaking, I suppose. So for all that accommodating, gentle behavior, uh, it, it's suggesting it was all kind of for nothing. Um, for sure. And so we think this is, um, so it's talking about Hua Xiren, one of Bao Yu's own servants, Aroma. Yeah. Uh, and it's suggesting what the that all of the all of the care that she's shown for him will ultimately be in vain. I, I mean, all of these poems seem to convey a. Um, this is the department of ill fate, so it it doesn't seem like it's going to end well for any of these any of these individuals, unfortunately. Because there there are so many of these, I, I think we should skip ahead and let's go right to the the Zhengzi, the the main registry. Um, main registry, yeah. And what's really interesting here is that the first. The first painting and poem combination seems to correspond not with one individual but with two, um, mm-hmm. namely uh, Lin Dayu and Shi Bao Chai. So our, our two yeah. main uh, female protagonists are represented in one poem, and so there's been a lot of you know ink spilled over the uh, the, the significance. We, we actually we were talking over email a little bit about whether yeah. um, whether this is a, an indication. In a previous episode, we discussed you know. What do we think? Is Lin Dayu like a, a real character, or is she more of a, a vessel of projection, yeah, of desire, of, of fantasy? And maybe the same question could be said of Shri Bao Chai, although she mm-hmm. seems to represent the opposite—a different kind, a different set, maybe a complementary set of so-called uh, feminine virtues. Yeah, uh, and so we see a little bit of that, I think, in the material that, that is to follow. Yeah. So I mean, do you want to just touch on the the painting first here? Because I think that the imagery here is really is quite good. It is, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so I mean, in the Hawks translation, it Bao picks up the main register. In this album, the first, sorry, big one. In this album, the picture on the first page represented two dead trees, with a jade belt hanging in their branches, and on the ground beneath them, a pile of snow, in which a golden hairpin lay half buried. So. Yeah, you mentioned before that some of the images are rather macabre. This one is not very strongly so, but but certainly is a bit. You know, the the image of two dead trees with these strange symbolic objects, um, and we imagine no human or other, you know, no human figures, but also no animals or other anything else. It's very bleak. Mm. It's very bare. And I guess the two items, the jade belt and the gold hairpin, are. Um, of great symbolic significance, as we will see. Would you, I mean, would you like to do the the poem? One was a pattern of female virtue. One, a wit who made other wits seem slow. 
The jade belt in the green wood hangs. The gold pin is buried beneath the snow. It's one of the more straightforward poems, actually. Um, mm. We can talk about, you know, it's a pretty clear example of, of this, what Hawks would refer to as a, a rebus device, a, a rebus uh, displacement, where, you know, uh, Lin Dayu is, um, well, there's a few things going on. So there's two trees, and the character for Lin is just two trees. Uh, and so that we see the character represented in the in the actual contents of the of the painting, and then the jade belt, yeah. uh, it's uh, I guess a homophonous uh, displacement where uh, black jade Dai Yu could also be uh, Yu Dai, which means uh, jade yeah, belt. Yeah. So Dai, it's 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 a, it's, yeah, a, exactly. a it's, it's basically changing one Dai for another and then rearranging them, which is very much the late how dreams seem to work, at least according to a, a traditional. Freudian interpretation. And then uh, we have the pile of snow, which again is homophonous with the surname of Shua Baochai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly the word for snow is Shua and her surname Shua, yeah, as you say, homophonous. And and in this in this line, there isn't a total play on words, but it's uh, there's not homophony to the same degree with her first name, but there's um, there's an implied play on words. So it uses the term Jinzan, which means gold mm-hmm. hairpin, and her name is Bao Chai, which means jeweled hairpin glass. So, so although Jinzan and Bao Chai don't have any similar sound, no homophony, the the meaning is obviously very closely parallel. Exactly, so, yeah. whereas with whereas with the Dai Yu Dai homophony in the previous line, where the meanings diverge but the sounds converge. In this case, there's no similarity of sound, but the meaning does does parallel very clearly. Mm. I, I mean, if you read the two, the last two lines, it's actually potentially very dark. So it reads, Yu Dai Lin Zhong Gua Jin Zan Xue Li Mai. So basically, literally, the jade belt hangs from the trees and the gold hairpin is buried in the snow. But um, because in each case, the first three characters relate quite closely to the names of the characters, as in people within the story, you can read it as Lin Dayu is, is hanging from the tree and Xue Baochai is buried beneath the earth kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it is, you know, it's one of these things where it's, it, it's not necessarily a prediction of the future, but it does present this slightly nightmarish possible future i suppose there's something uncanny i, I would say about it um because it, it does seem yeah. meaningful at the same time it seems arbitrary at the same time that it, yeah it evokes feeling indirectly there's something really interesting going on there mm. the only other thing i wanted to emphasize here was um what hawks has is a pattern of female uh of virtue the exact expression there is interesting it's it's tingjida which would translate more literally as um, the virtue of stopping machine or of not stopping your machine, which is a reference to just constant weaving, essentially. We referenced earlier the Lianudron, the biographies of exemplary women. Uh, and this, I think the first time this uh, expression is used, or at least in, in the transmitted tradition, is in that work. And so it's the idea that you just 
you know, you're, you're so committed to, um, to virtue and propriety that you basically, all of your energy is directed into and sublimated into just, you know, hard work and hard, you know, quote unquote, women's work, you know, weaving. That's very much different than what we know about, uh, about Lin Dayu, who, um, yeah. you know, represents maybe a more, um, a more free spirited female ideal.